Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Midwestern Marks Podcast. My name is Eddie Liger-Smith here with Carlos Garrido. Today, we're going to be talking about politics, philosophy, political economy, all sorts of stuff that we like to talk about here. How are you doing today, Carlos? I'm doing very... <laughs> I'm very happy, man. It's uh... <laughs> good job. Yeah, you're doing good today? It's a good day. Uh, you know, live, laugh, love. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the neoliberal <laughs> that's what they want everyone <laughs> just live laugh love you gotta retain it um so we want to we want to touch on quick our buddy chandler who wants to come on the podcast soon got canceled this week by some some post leftists um so postmodernists are having posters in his room um, they said he was commodifying his ideology. They said that Marx himself would have been against this, you know, and Marx would have said, you're commodifying the ideology of socialism and communism, despite all the work that Chandler does in his community, trying to spread class consciousness. He just Snapchatted me before we started this podcast. He said that his whole life is dedicated to sp uh, spreading class consciousness. All right, so next we're going to be moving on to uh, what Marx's views of worker co-ops were. There's been a lot of talk about this. I know on TikTok, a lot of young leftists wonder about worker co-ops. A lot of people get involved with leftism through Richard Wolff, who's obviously advocating for a worker co-op style socialism. Um, so, Carlos, uh, take it away, please. Inform us about worker co-ops. Yeah, so like you mentioned, one of the probably the the biggest uh, right now, one of the biggest uh, YouTube channels is uh, Richard Wolf's Democracy at Work. And it's got like a million follow, a million subscribers by now. Um, and the sort of socialism that he's promoting is centered around uh, cooperative property. Uh, so the, the question is, um, what is the, the view that Marx angles um, or even Lenin had on cooperative property, because this is not a new, a new phenomenon. Um, this is something that has existed for a long time. As, as, as socialists in America, a lot of the 19th century socialists um, in the US were actually advocating for cooperative forms of, of socialism um, mixed with like communalism and other, other forms of property. So, I think one of the important things to understand first is that cooperative property um, has existed in all of the really existing socialist states in different forms. Um, usually it has been predominant in agriculture, um, but, it, but it, has, uh, it has existed in, in other forms as well. Um, so a, a cooperative in essence, in, in the way that Richard Wolff is referring to it specifically, is basically an enterprise. It's a regular company, but the company is ran without the parasitic element of the capitalist. So the, there might be a managerial class uh, that guides, but that managerial class is elected by the workers. So the workers are the share owners of, of the factory that they work in they guide the processes by which the factory um, uh, functions democratically. And their leader is not this sort of authority figure that looks down and tells like the workers what to do, but it's the other way around. The leader is seen as, as someone who's given 
their power because of the workers who can be called out in any moment. Um, and, and with that, there is the, the idea from, from the side of the workers that, um, that since you own a share of the company, you want the company to succeed, right? So you want to have the best person at the head of things who can guide the, the company the best. Um, if you want to know more about the, the in-depth dynamics of, of co-ops, I, I highly recommend uh, Richard Wolf's channel. That's not the, the purpose of today's talk. Um, the purpose of today's talk is, is more so on, on the theoretical side of how these co-ops were viewed by, by Marx, Engels, and, and I include Lenin at the end. Um, and this comes from an article that I published, I believe, a few, few months ago now. On, on the topic as such. Um, so the cooperative movement is something that is not just getting popular here in the US with, with Richard Wolf. Like I mentioned, he's got one of the biggest channels on, on YouTube. Um, it's, it's also uh, has a foothold around the world. Uh, probably the biggest cooperative now is Mondragon, which is, exists in the Basque region uh, of Northern Spain. It's been around since the 50s. Uh, it has origins in, in, in a father. Father's name was Adresba something. It's got a long name. Let me see if I find it here in the article. Um, Adlis Mandarlieda. Jose Maria Adlis Mandarlieda. And in 1956 was when the corporation was started. At that time, all of the regular capitalist enterprises had left. And so uh, the workers decided to to do this together. And the thing about that, um, that project is that it's not just, um, it's not just the, uh, the enterprises that are cooperatized, but they have their own banking system and everything. And, and they really do live in like their sort of small communistic society. And it, it wasn't the case in this last um, recession, but usually um, they have been historically really good at not um, not doing as other capitalist enterprises do during a recession. So they usually are able to maintain uh, their jobs and, and everyone do, do pretty well. Um, so the question is, what is, what is Marx, Engels's or Lenin's, what is Marxism's view of co-ops overall? Um, and you have the sentiment that, that Marxism is against co-ops because on one end there is a a sort of utopian logic to it where they're trying to escape the system not necessarily trying to change it right the utopian communities of the 19th century what they did was create sort of off-the-grid communities um, that would function outside of the logic of capitalism and it could seem like even though it's not that off the grid um, the cooperative experiment is trying to change the logic existing in, in the regular forms of dynamic and capitalism without actually fighting to transcend it as, as a whole, right? So they wanna recreate a new, a new set of relationships without changing the existing ones. And to some extent that, that is a, a fair critique, but um, this doesn't necessarily mean that cooperative relationships have to be um, contradictory to the class struggle or contradictory to 
a process of nationalization once uh, workers grab power of the state, right? These two things are not contradictory. And I think a good way to see this is by looking at the views that Marx and Engels had on actual cooperatives. So there's three ways we could look at this. The first one is cooperatives that are done inside of capitalism and that are done with the will of the workers, right? So uh, Mondragon is a perfect example. Mondragon wasn't like a state promoted cooperative. It was done by, by the father and, and all of the people in the community. The other option is a capitalist enterprise that arises because of uh, funding from the state or something like that. Or um, if we think about the, the sort of um, the system that uh, Robert Owens was initially promoting, first one of the first thing he did before New Harmony was a cooperative enterprise. That was something that didn't come out of the workers, but it came out of the owner. Right? So that's the the first two things. And the last thing is, what would a cooperative uh, corporation signify in a post capitalist society and in a socialist society. These are the three ways in which Marx and Engels engage with the question of cooperatives. As far as a cooperative within capitalism, that is engaged with in, in, in chapter, uh, in volume three of Capital. And I have here a quote that I wanna read that I think um, signifies the spirit of, of what Marx is, is saying in relationship to cooperatives that are formed by the workers within the, the logic of capitalism. He says, the cooperative factories of the laborers themselves represents within the old form, the first sprouts of the new. Although they naturally reproduce and must reproduce everywhere in their actual organization, all the shortcomings of the prevailing system. But the antithesis between capital and labor is overcome within them. If at first only by way of making the associated laborers into their own capitalists, by enabling them to use the means of production for the employment of their own labor, they show how a new mode of production naturally grows out of an old one. When the development of the material forces of production and the corresponding forms of social production have reached a particular stage, Without the factory system arising out of the capitalist mode of production, there could have been no cooperative factories. The capitalist stock company, as much as the cooperative factories, should be considered as transitional forms of the capitalist mode of production to the associated one. With the only distinction that the antagonism is resolved negatively in the one and positive, positively in the other. What does that last part mean? That last part is, is uh, dialectics. Uh, in essence. Um, and that's, this is for those who say that Marx takes Hegel and shoves him to the side after, after 46. This is the, vol the third volume of Capital and he's, his language is dialectical. What he's saying here is that cooperative factories are basically the, the, the process of the negation of the negation. The process by which a, a new society begins to grow out of the old one. So in essence, what, what they are is a form of socialist uh, or a socialistic form of, of life growing out of capitalism. And he juxtaposes this with his opposite, which is the capitalist stock company, which is also an association of capitalists in the same way that the cooperative is an association of, of workers. 
And the capitalist stock company he sees as the positive side. So it's the side, one of them, that's it's it's the one sprouting towards the abolition of the system, towards a new system, and the other one that's sprouting towards the development of the contradictions to a higher form in which you're still within the, the same totality. So the capitalist stock company moves capitalism further into a new uh, mode of capitalism. Capitalism has had a bunch of different modes, mercantilism, uh, small corporations, uh, monopolies, um, imperialism, which you just did a series on. So the stock company helps that process, right? Uh, the cooperative he sees as, as um, as the equivalent of that, but in the negative sense, as that which is growing out of capitalism to destroy it. And this relates quite a bit to something he talks about in a more theoretic sense a long time before. And this is in the Holy Family, which is the first text he does with, with angles. This is a passage that Marx wrote from chapter four of the Holy Family and it states, Proletarian and wealth are opposites. As such, they form a single whole. They are both forms of the world of private property. The question is what place each occupies in the antithesis. It is not sufficient to declare them two sides of a single whole, private property as private property, as wealth is compelled to maintain itself and thereby its opposite, the proletariat, in existence. That is the positive side of the contradiction. So if we remember from the other quote, the positive side was the stock companies as well. Self-satisfied private property. The proletariat, on the other hand, is compelled as proletariat to abolish itself and thereby its opposite. The conditions for its existence, what makes it proletariat, that is private property. That is the negative side of the contradiction. It's relentless with its very self, dissolved and self-dissolving private property. The property classes and the class of the proletariat present the same human self-alienation, but the former class finds this alienation, its self-confirmation and its good, its own power, that's the capitalist. It has in it a semblance of human existence. The class of the proletariat feels annihilated by this self-alienation. It sees in itself its own powerlessness, its own reality of an inhuman existence. Um, so yeah, in essence, we see here in 45 is when the German, when the, the Holy Family is written, it's before the German ideology. And Marx is talking about the proletarian being the negation, the capitalist being the affirmation, both two parts of, of, of the same whole, uh, one the positive side and one the negative side. Skip forward three decades to volume three of Capital. And he's talking about the cooperative as the negative uh, and, and the capitalist stock company as the positive and the both making a whole. So first off, the cooperatives, once they stem out of uh, the workers will, is seen as a negation to capitalism, as the burgeoning process by which from capitalism itself, we begin to develop a form of socialism. Now, then we can think about how is it uh, that he analyzes the, 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 the cooperatives in a context of state-sponsored cooperatives, 
And this is what the Lasayians were, were trying to do. They were trying to promote through the state the, the existence of, of cooperatives. And of course, the state as an instrument of capital, um, that's, that's pretty absurd. So from here's where the quotes that Marx was anti-cooperatives come from. But we're gonna explain why those quotes are decontextualized and, and what he actually means by this. This is from Critique of the Gotha Program. He says that the workers desire to establish the conditions for cooperative production on a social scale and first of all, on a national scale or in their own country only means that they are working to revolutionize the present conditions of production. And it has nothing in common with the foundation of cooperative societies with state aid. But as far as the present cooperative societies are concerned, they are of value only insofar as they are independent creations of the workers and not the protégés either of the government or of the bourgeoisie. What does that mean? Well, that a cooperative has at least initial value in its formation when it's something that comes from the workers themselves. When the workers say um, the, the, the company is falling apart, um, don't sell it off, we'll buy it and we'll do it together. That it has values when, when, when it is the, the workers that partake in the process of making the cooperative. When like uh, Robert Dale Owen or, or um, Lasaya was trying to do, which was trying to get either the state or, or uh, the capitalist class to promote cooperatives, it doesn't have the value. It's not, there's no revolutionary value because it didn't come out of the workers to build it. Now, if we analyze the dynamic of the cooperative, the cooperative breaks in its, in its being as a form of property that is inherently post-capitalist or non-capitalist. It breaks a lot of the alienating factors and a lot of the divisions that are sown in the process uh, of production uh, and experience as, as the worker in the process of production during capitalism. So part of the alienating process is being, alienating for, being alienated from other people, being alienated from the product, from the process of production, there's no say in what you're doing. Um, and he also, says in, in, in 44, being alienated from your species being. Now, in the cooperative, all of that is destroyed because the workers are actively, willfully participating democratically, deciding what they're going to work on, how they're going to work on it. They're going to make the work meaningful for themselves, um, which means that the product is not going to be alienated from them. The process of making the product is not something that's going to alienate them. The person next to them is not someone that's alienated because they're cooperatizing. It, it's a cooperative relationship. It's not a competitive relationship. And if we still want to maintain the concept of species being that Marx takes from Feuerbach, we can say that now they're manifesting their species being. What does this mean? This means that these are people that are not going to just be satisfied with them being the only ones living in a society that's enjoying this. They have experienced what you can call, what, what Maria Teo would call the spirit of communism the ethos of communism. And that's an ethos that like, like Christianity, like those who really want to follow the footsteps of Christ, it implies activeness. It is an ethical uh, spirit. And, and once you get that taste of what a cooperative is like, that, that critique that it moves people away from the class struggle and that it has the same dynamic as a utopian little society that's here on the side and that tries to divorce itself from the world, it doesn't seem to be true. 
it seems to, to demonstrate that people change in, in the process of the cooperative and that in that process, then they're able to go uh, uh, and, and, and still work, right? And, and still work for, for the class struggle. Uh, so I have one more thing that I wanted to say, but I have been talking for quite a bit. Do you have any comments on, on so far? Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I wanted, I mean, the way Richard Wolff presents his argument is socialism had too much bureaucracy, which is what count, um, consolidated power at the top and allowed for state repression. You know, that's his anti-USSR critique. And it's like, I don't know that worker-owned co-ops are necessarily the, the answer for bureaucracy. You know, the bureaucracy and the military arose because the Soviet Union and other socialist experiments weren't able to wither their state apparatus the way that, you know, theoretically they had hoped to because they needed to defend from private capital. So, it you know, when I... And I think what we should be striving for and the kind of vision we should be pitching for people is like nationalization of major industries, worker-owned co-op consumer market. So we can keep our consumer goods and the people who are producing these consumer goods aren't alienated as you've been describing. And, and this idea that, you know, there's been also an argument I've seen that Marx wasn't pro co-op. And I mean, you've proved here that he was. And then, you know, one of the main things you see libertarians saying, I mean, it's kind of become a joke at this point, but they say debunk the ECP, the economic calculation problem, the idea that central planning can't determine market prices. It's like, well, as far as a consumer market, you can just have that, you know, covered by worker-owned co-ops and then have central plan state-owned industry um, in, your, in your initial stages of socialism. Um, so, so I agree with Richard Wolf pitching the co-ops and I think that's a good way to get around red scare propaganda to be like, no, this is something new than the Soviet system, but also realistically, it's not a cure for bureaucracy. You know, it's maybe a cure for the inability for central planning to give people consumer goods, um, that are produced by capitalism, um, that have been so, so alluring to socialist nations, um, within global capitalism, right? When they go to establish socialism and, and then you have capitalist propagandists saying, oh, your country sucks, don't you wanna have these sneakers? And then they go to capitalism and you know everyone's poor because that's what capitalism is, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, I absolutely agree. And that's the thing, it, it can address the question of bureaucracy because it doesn't understand the cause of bureaucracy, right? It sees like the bureaucracy as just what they wanted to be. It was just corrupt. Uh, uh, corrupt uh, people from the party that wanted power. Like, no, uh, there's reasons why things ended up a certain way that no one, it's, it's just not plausible that, that these people who hold these ideals that we share um, would go on and do uh, bureaucracy just for the hell of it. Um, they, it was a calculated analysis as to what is necessary in order to help the revolution survive. And in order for it to survive, a lot of the ideals had to be pushed aside for the time being. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't advances. Of course, there were advances, and not just in material realms, but also in spiritual realms. And anyone who has talked to, to Soviet people or seen the interview and, uh, can, can tell. And that, that was one of the points we mentioned in the last podcast. But the essence of what I'm trying to get to here is that there seems to be two sides to it. The sides that are like Richard Wolff, co-ops are the way forward and, and you know and then the sides that are like co-ops are anti-marxist 
I'm trying to balance and say that it's not necessarily an either or. Um, you can have a process of, of co-ops and also have a nationalization process for major industries. In fact, Cuba in 2015, after a year or so that Obama had dropped the blockade, they opened up the possibility for non-agro co-ops. Originally, all of their agricultural production, almost all of it was cooperative. They opened up consumer co-ops that were non-agro and they had the highest GDP in 2015. Uh, in Latin America. So it worked, it worked, <laughs> it, it worked for them, but it, it's a very specific sector. Like you shouldn't cooperatize uh, certain things that are absolutely necessary that the state should handle and, and should be nationalized. So, but the, the point is to break this either or and trying to do it with, um, by analyzing what it is that the thinkers that are at the, at the heart of our tradition said. So uh, then you could say, well, that was, uh, those quotes were from Marx. Marx never really experienced uh, socialism besides the, the Paris Commune. Uh, the tradition of 20th century socialism uh, is one that is anti-co-op. Oh, and then I used Lenin. And Lenin here states on an article on cooperatives, he says, now we are entitled to say that for us, the mere growth of cooperation is identical with the growth of socialism. And at the same time, we have to admit that there has been a radical modification in our whole outlook on socialism. The radical modification is this, formerly we placed and had to place the main emphasis on the political struggle, on revolution, on winning political power, etc. Now the emphasis is on changing and shifting to peaceful organizational cultural work. So that of course is after the revolution, which brings us to the third topic. What are, what's the view in the Marxist tradition or even Marxist-Leninist tradition of cooperatives within socialism? And it's kind of funny in, in um, on the civil war in France, which is the text that Marx does uh, four years after the commune, where he's reflecting and, and you're doing a series now on state and revolution and, and Lenin, I know he touches on the shift that Marx makes from the 40, from 47 when he writes the manifesto to 75. Um, uh, and in this text, he's, uh, he's addressing uh, who we believe is, is um, John Stuart Mill, um, who is this one uh, liberal bourgeois theorist who saw that capitalism was gonna end up in a sort of cooperative society. Um, that the enterprises were going to end up being cooperative. Um, so he's the father of utilitarianism, which is an ethical system that states that um, the right thing to do is that which maximizes um, happiness for the greatest number of people. So he ends up in like capitalism, but with cooperatives. And here's what Marx has to say uh, uh, with that. He says, why those members of the ruling classes who are intelligent enough to perceive the impossibility of continuing the present system, and they are many, have become an obtrusive and full-mouthed apostles of cooperative production. If cooperative production is not to maintain, is not to remain a sham and a snare, if it is to supersede the capitalist system, if united cooperative societies are to regulate national production upon a common plan, thus taking it under their own control, and putting an end to the constant anarchy and periodical convulsions, 
which are the fatality of capitalist production. What else, gentlemen, would it be but communism? Possible communism? I love how he's like, <laughs> possible communism? Like what? So, um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, in essence, what he's saying is, what, what is a society that's just a bunch of co-ops? That's communism. <laughs> and if we analyze it from, from the question of, of what's at the core of Marxism in terms of the humanist philosophy of trying to overcome alienation, the process by which things are produced in a co-op, as I mentioned earlier, it eliminates a lot of these uh, alienations that, that dehumanize human beings. So it's obvious that a society that's guided by full cooperative production is one that can only be labeled as communism. Um, and, and again, Leno, uh, Engels in a, in a letter to Babel, uh, who is another uh, uh, revolutionary uh, states, my proposal envisages the introduction of cooperative societies, uh, cooperatives into existing production, just as the Paris Commune demanded that the workers should manage cooperatively the factories and close down, uh, close down by the manufacturers. I think the Labour Party in Britain, uh, Jeremy Corbyn had a, uh, a bill that was gonna make it so that if a company um, was going bankrupt, they had to offer it to their workers to buy it before they can try to sell it off to anyone else. That's Engels saying, saying the same thing there. Um, he then states uh, in, in the same letter that, uh, that neither he nor Marx ever doubted that in the course of the transition to a wholly communist economy, widespread use would have to be made of cooperative management as an intermediate stage. So here we're talking about co-ops as an intermediate to, to socialism. And then finally with Lenin, uh, he states uh, in the same article on, on co-ops, given social ownership of the means of production, given the class victory of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie, the system of civilized cooperators is the system of socialism. Cooperation under our conditions nearly always coincides with fully with socialism. So in essence, either way we think about it, the Marxist tradition is in favor of cooperative societies. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for, for state power um, and to nationalize the main industries. It just means that we don't have to be either orient. Um, we can be in favor of co-ops and also struggle for, for state power. Um, we can take a more nuanced approach. For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the things definitely aren't interchangeable. And the other thing I thought of was you mentioned um, Mono Dragon, or, or however you Algebra. pronounce it. Yeah, 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 yeah. In Spain, the big worker co-op they aren't state sponsored. Yeah. But I was thinking of the communes in Venezuela, which are state sponsored. There's two thousand um, communes, which is different than a worker co-op, but similar idea, you know, with worker councils and direct democracy and, and direct ownership of all the most important things, you know, they try and uh, attain food sustainability and things like that, you know, plant their own food as much as they can with the US blockade and they are state sponsored and the state <clears throat> cultivates those to try and cultivate socialist consciousness, um, try and cultivate food sustainability, you know, and, and worker democracy overall, which is hilarious given what we're told about Venezuela being an authoritarian dictatorship. Um, but you can't things be state sponsored, you know, they're not truly exclusive um, and they are pro Marxist, you know, it is it Marx advocated for the youth, as you said, 
you could essentially have a communist society made up of worker-owned co-ops. Um, and they were pretty clear about that. So to act like not Marxist or to act like, you know, you have to choose either um, I want the state to own everything or I want, you know, a worker state which promotes worker co-ops, um, you know, uh, you know, there's a, uh, or you can advocate for a worker state, you know, that nationalizes maybe major industry and then promotes worker co-op. Um, so I think that was really good. Do you have anything else to say before we move on? Um, just that it's it's sad because a lot of the major figures like Rosa Luxemburg and Reform and Revolution, one of the things that Bernstein is arguing is that um, cooperatives are, was it cooperatives or labor unions? I think it was labor unions. I'm not going to finish the comment because I'm not 100% sure if it's correct. But um, just overall, if you think about the 20th century Marxist, how many didn't uh, or how many did say that cooperatives are 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 un-Marxist because um, they drive us away from the class struggle or, or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um. And that's been a, a big conversation as of late. I've seen it even on, you know, among socialists. A lot of people <clears throat> try and act um, holier than thou and say Marx never advocated for worker-owned co-ops. <clears throat> and coincidentally, those people just haven't read enough Marx, maybe. Um, well, it was. It's it's honestly the like the the, the quotes. One of them is from chapter from volume three of Capital. So rarely anyone gets past one. The other one that is in a more negative light is from the Gotha program. And that has been the inspiration for a lot of the negative comments because people haven't been able to read it in its, in its proper context to see what it means. Um, and then the Civil War in France, people don't usually read that because it's, it's a more political text and they should. Um, so, I mean, I, I still sustain that like, Marx doesn't give a formula for what the next society is going to look like, right? Um, that that would be prophetic, and that's not what what he's trying to do. That'd be anti-materialist. But he's just saying, if this, then yeah, it would be socialism. <laughs> so, but yeah. Cool. All right, let's move on then. Um, I wanted to talk about. Um, well, earlier today I posted a TikTok about Abu Ghraib, which was a prison. Um, this is a big transition, by the way. We always try and talk about philosophy, and then we talk, try and talk about um, geopolitics and imperialism, because that's kind of our specialization. Um, so I posted about Abu Ghraib, which was a prison in Iraq, where the famous pictures came out of, um, you know, uh, torture going on, fish, or, I mean, U.S. troops or whoever was there guarding the prison smiling in the background while people are being tortured. A photo of someone with his arms um, out to the side with electroshock hooked up to his fingers, which was, of course, parodied. At the time, there was that famous iPod shuffle commercial where it was the people dancing and it was like their silhouettes. And Apple has deep ties to the military industrial complex and the Iraq war specifically, um, including funding some of the stuff they used to torture these people. So someone made a piece of political artwork and it was the silhouette from that commercial and it said, instead of iPod, it said Iraq or Iraq and then had the person getting electrocuted. Um, so yeah, 
I mean, it shows the connection that Islamophobia has to 21st century imperialism. So, I mean, a lot of the 21st century, a lot of the last century took place in Latin America and Africa, keeping these countries suppressed. But in the 21st century, it's been the war on terror, this, this nonsensical um, uh, war we're fighting against an enemy that doesn't exist. You know, we're the country who's funded the Mujahideen. We're the country who armed and shipped rebels into Syria. Um, and, and yet and we're the country who funds Saudi Arabia. And, and yet we're fighting this war on terror, you know, a, a total joke, which is, I mean, the majority of Americans just have like uh, negative feelings towards Muslim people. That's how bad it's gotten since 9-11. I mean, 9-11 was the perfect thing they use um, to spur this anti-Islamic sentiment that allows them to justify any war in the Middle East. And there was kind of a really, it was a really bad study. They only interviewed like 500 people, but it was like 40% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats said they're in favor of bombing Agrabah, which is the fictional city from the movie Aladdin. But if it sounds Arabic, people in the U.S. are going to be in favor of bombing it. Um, and, and neoliberal hero Obama completely destroyed uh, Libya, the country with the highest standard of living of any country in Africa. Um, prior to the intervention, now it's run by warlords and they have an open-air slave market. Um, Syria, obviously same type of thing. You know, it's been an effort to destroy Ba'athist socialism and, and paint paint um, Muslim culture as, as just super hateful you know as as we're bombing them as we're killing millions of them we're saying americans you need to be scared of these people because their their religion is harmful um so i mean abu Ghraib was a, a a good example of that they did uh you know sexual torture of these people because they knew it was against their religion because they knew that's how to get you know that's how to get to them and they would ask these people over and over again as they electroshocked them as they, as they did all these horrendous torture techniques on them across iraq afghanistan and in guantanamo bay does saddam hussein have weapons of mass destruction people say no all right, we waterboard you, we electroshock you. Does Saddam Hussein have weapons of mass destruction? Eventually, because they know that's what the American torturers want to hear, they say yes. And that's what we use as justification for the invasion of Iraq. Um, and that's what they've discovered. And I mean, people are still falling for it. Now you got these people falling for the Uyghur narrative in China, right? The, we need to listen to the United States government because they care oh so deeply for these Uyghur Muslims. We need to destroy the government of China, the Chinese Communist, Communist Party. These people are not comrades because of what the U.S. government and the U.N. told us they're doing to the Uyghurs. You really, really, you're so naive as to think the U.S. government the United States government cares about Muslim people. No, <laughs> no, our, our, our policy overseas is about what gains our finance capitalists the most profit by acquiring them the most territory. After the Iraq war, after we killed millions of Muslim people, um, the, the oil profits of our oil, uh, oil oligarchs, um, the profits of our weapons manufacturers and the profits of our bankers, skyrocketed because they had more territory, they had more markets, and they had raw, more raw materials, which is what these wars are about. The U.S. government does not care about Muslim people. They care that the vast majority of China's resources uh, are nationalized, and that's what they want a hold of, and, the, and they'll use any human rights allegation they can, you know, as our country sponsors Israel, as they sponsor Saudi Arabia, who's doing a genocide in Yemen. 
It's Iran we need to worry about, right? Iran, who again, most of their resources are nationalized. And there's people on the left who can't see through this and it's extremely frustrating because we've been through Iraq now, right? Saddam Hussein is this unholy evil dictator. We need to destroy him. He's, you know, the new Hitler. <clears throat> I mean, do I really need to go through the list of countries that the U.S. has destabilized and overthrown because of allegations of human rights? And you see socialists and people on the left falling for it again, you know, because of whatever. Uh, this country in the Middle East is homophobic, you know, therefore we need to go in and overthrow their leader. Well, hold on. Now you're trying to impose neoliberal Western cultural values on, on the Muslim world that you don't even understand at all. You know, as you call other people racist and, 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 and uh, you know, whatever else and, and try and use identity politics to shame other people is what seems like the trend with American liberals or American synthetic leftists who support imperialism while focusing solely on identity politics. Um, and, and, you know, the main the main focus on identity politics that I've used, the main the main place where I see racism, you know, it, it, and there's a ton of racism in America, of course towards everyone, but or, I mean, towards all minorities, but especially it's towards uh, Muslim people. You know, it's Islamophobia that's been purposefully cultivated by the ruling class in order to lie the public into the Gulf War, into the into Syria, into Libya, into Iraq. And now most recently they're trying to get us to do it with Iran. And of course they're doing a genocide in Yemen. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I've absolutely had it with the left falling for it. I've absolutely had it with the left piling on Assad, you know, as our country's launching missile strikes at Syrian civilians. You know, you're, give me a break. You're telling me Assad's destroying the country um, because he doesn't hold the same social views as you. He's trying to develop them as we launch missile strikes at them. Um, and, and as we literally import rebel groups into Syria, because there weren't enough Assad rebels on the ground for us to arm, we had to bring them from the UAE, from Libya, uh, from outside countries and bring them into Syria to destabilize the whole country. And think of what you want of Assad, I don't really care. Imagine the effect that has on the Libyan people. Imagine the effect that has on our troops who are sending to this conflict. They have no idea what's even going on there. They think they're signing up to defend the country. And all of a sudden they're in this random country that we destabilized filled with warlords um, watching violence and dead bodies and coming back with PTSD and getting no help from the government. Um, and all this is spurred by, um, by this, by this anti-Islamic sentiment, right? These countries, if we don't go over there, they're going to kill us. They say that in the movie American Sniper, which won Best Picture, which makes me want to throw up. He's, his wife is like, don't go back to Iraq, honey. He's like, well, what if they come here and get us first? They were never going to come get us first. When was the last time a country invaded America? Never. Because they know what would happen. It's well, Pearl, Pearl Harbor was the last. Bases. What? Pearl, it wasn't Pearl Harbor the last attack. But that wasn't, I mean, you got that wasn't technically an invasion. Right. 9-11 in which 11 of the 16 oh, yeah. hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, our greatest fucking ally. But, oh, we're not invading them because look at that. They give us all the oil we want. What a coincidence. You know, and the people who can't say, see through this, it's a joke. It's so frustrating that they put their identity politics and their cultural values over anti-imperialism. It, it drives me insane. Yeah, man, it's... Absolutely. So there's a few layers to it. The first one is just um, the acceptance of the what Edward Said called the Orientalist narrative, that the conception of the 
Oriental world is one that's created by the West. And that's the one that a lot of socialists here in the U.S. sustain. And thus, it's very easy to fall into the propaganda that is promoted um, about these areas, whether it's uh, the Middle East or whether it's China. It's very easy to believe the stereotypes. It's very easy to believe what they're saying when you already have this preconceived stereotype of what the world is like over there. But then there's, there's, there's those that are able to kind of overcome that. And, and realize that, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's different. You know, these values are, are not as, as we hear them, right? And, and, but that's still not enough. Because then what you have is just a history that's just the history of the greatest creations that are coming from the West. And you have no idea that the rest of the world also did a bunch of great shit, right? So it's not enough just thinking that, no, yeah, these people are not as bad as we're told they are. We also have to learn the great civilizations that came from these different areas. And this is something that you emphasize in your Iran video. The, the great intellectual culture that Iran had, um, if we're talking about China, China being the oldest and, and one of the richest civilizations in the history of humanity. If we're talking about Africa, we can talk about Egypt and how Egypt played a role before the Greeks. How Pythagoras and, and, and how his influence came from um, Egyptian mathematics. So it's not just even sort of negating the narrative on about, about the Orient. It's reconstructing the way we think about history to include the fact that all of these places had excellent civilizations that are equally as valuable as the West. And that doesn't mean we have to get the, the, the history of the West and toss it aside either. Um, we can embrace the, the great stuff that came from our history, the, the Greeks and, and stuff. But it's, 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 it's a twofold process. One of deorientalizing people's minds so that they stop thinking in paradigms that make them see Muslim people as terrorists and, and, and Chinese people as, as dictators and, and that leads them to believe all of these imperialist uh, propaganda. But it's also a process of educating ourselves about the world beyond the West and, and the advances that have been made um, in that world beyond the West, which includes Latin America, the great uh, uh, indigenous civilizations um, and the advancements that they had and, and the, the complex structures of, of democracy that they had. Um, that when the Jesuits uh, came, they were like, shit, what's this? This is more advanced than what we have back home. Um, so, yeah, a lot of Western leftists frame it as like, sure, Assad and Gaddafi are evil, but we shouldn't have bombed them. It's like, well, hold on. I mean, sure, I don't really care what you think about these leaders, but in Syria, in Libya, and in the Middle East, in Iran, in Iraq, there's these rich, rich intellectual traditions, and there's things to learn with them, for one. And, and for two, there's things to learn about them because they've been oppressed, because they've been victims of imperialism and, and colonialism and we can't I mean think about France France Fanon who came out of you know who studied colonialism in Africa and we have so much to learn from him um, because he has a unique perspective that you can't get from the West um, and the same I think of Hakeem you know and how he's been like schooling Vosh lately because Vosh is a Twitch streamer in the U.S. who's never faced the brunt of imperialism so he has a lot of maybe Western biases that he doesn't realize and listening to someone as intelligent as Hakeem, who's um, lived in Iraq or grown up in Iraq, 
in a time when, like I've talked about, we've seen insane anti-Islamic sentiment and U.S. military destruction of the Middle East for the expansion of private capital and Western finance capital, someone like Hakeem has an invaluable perspective because his home was literally bombed by the United States. So we could see someone who's a victim of capital and we can see someone who's a victim of imperialism um, and he's also a doctor, right? So it's like we have this view of these people like, okay, they're bad, but we shouldn't bomb them. It's like, no, they're not bad. You know, <laughs> we need to not only not bomb them, we need to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And, and might I add the majority of their leftist parties are Marxist Leninist pro-Soviet parties because they understand as Vijay Prashad writes in the red star over the third world, you know, what the Soviet Union actually meant to the third world. In the US, we look at it and go, oh, it wasn't perfect socialism. Um, it wasn't decentralized socialism that withered the state and led to communism, therefore bad. Whereas in the third world, they're able to take this nuanced view and said, well, they brought us food while the U.S. was funding death squads in our country. So we like them more <laughs> and, you know, a more practical view of it in that way. Um, so it's important to get these perspectives from outside the West as well. Um, and, and that'll help you not be racist (laughs) and like you know if you read governance of china it'll help you not be xenophobic i mean sorry the majority of the western left is xenophobic they treat you know they talk about identity politics all day and then they say china's not communist and they're garbage meanwhile there's a hundred million members of the chinese communist party who are probably like oh what the hell well you're the you are part of the communist party and the world's biggest imperialist capitalist horrible abomination of a country the united states and you're telling us china's bad because you know whatever <laughs> so um yeah yeah uh, what, I, what i really fear is that even when they're able to do that what do they usually land on they usually land on like an anti-americanism <laughs> and then those are the people like burning the flag and, and saying that they hate america and it's like no there's a good video that it comes from uh, I forget what the movie is called but it's a it's a uh, the, uh, the examined life it's a philosophy film where they where they go around and, and they talk to different philosophers I believe Shishak and Cornel West is one of them but one of the ones that they talk to is Michael Hart who wrote this book Empire which is an interesting book we might disagree with it but it's an interesting book but he has this one comment um that he, he gives when he's rowing in the canal. And he's like, you know, I went to Nicaragua when the revolution was popping off. And I was like, how can I help? And the people were like, go the fuck back to your country and have a revolution over there. That's the <laughs> best way you can help. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty obvious. But what do you need in order to have a revolution in the US? What do you need in order to have the conditions in the US where we're not trying to overthrow all socialist attempts around the world? You need to have a sense of of patriotism. You need to love the country in order to try to change it. A parent doesn't doesn't punish a kid or educate him because he hates them. They do it because they love the kid and they want it to grow. And as revolutionaries, we have to be guided by love. We have to love our country, which means we don't love the imperialists and the racists and the capitalist assholes, but we love and embrace the tradition of those from our past, the abolitionists, the socialists of the 19th century, the parts of the founding fathers that were radical. We have to embrace the tradition that has fought against the grain and and, and love that tradition 
and use that as a patriotic drive. And that's the only way we're going to have socialism. We're not going to have socialism if we're going up to people that are in the working class and telling them how much we hate America and burning the flag in front of them. That's going to push the people who can do the revolution away from us. And it's absurd. It's a one-sided approach. It's idealistic. And it doesn't see that there's two Americas. We have to embrace the one that has been in our tradition of fighting against the grain. Yeah, and I mean, not to, um, I mean, you're the philosophy guy, but what are dialectics are seeing things in their totality and seeing the antagonisms and the contradictions. So why would America be any different, right? Like as, you, as we always say, two Americas. There's a socialist tradition, tradition, there's the labor movement, there's a civil rights movement, there's the women's movement, and then there's the capitalist imperialist movement that has developed you know, it's not necessarily that America is any worse than any other country. This is just where most of the private capital happens to reside. And, and, you know, imperialism is a symptom of highly developed capitalism. So as a result, the American state apparatus has become a tool of the imperialists. Does that mean the however many million people who live in America are bad and evil? Of course not. And does that mean our socialist revolutionaries aren't worth a shit and our, our union leaders aren't worth a shit? Of course not. You know, those are things to be proud of. And those are things we have to change. But, you know, and then there is stuff, too, that just seems like a distraction. Like, I understand decolonization. I understand the book Settlers, right? Our, our country is made up of different uh, of diverse groups who some were brought here, you know, some who were killed. But you're not going to get all the white people to up and go back to Europe. That is the most insane, unrealistic, ut utopian goal ever. So what's left to do? What's left to do is unite all the races and get dictatorship of the proletariat. The same thing that needs to happen in Palestine. Between, you know, you have this racial conflict between Palestinians and Israelis when both the working class of both um, ethnicities are being oppressed. You need dictatorship of the proletariat. I mean, the answer's been the same since, you know, since Marx, Marx first wrote about dictatorship of the proletariat in 1852 or whatever the hell after the events of the Paris Commune. Um, I mean, in all our racial and cultural conflicts, of course, there's no difference between the races, you know, we're all equal, but our economic system forces us to think we're different and imperialism forces us to be different from people. Um, um, so the answer is always dictatorship of the proletariat and transition to socialism and, and then transition to communism. It's the, it's the panacea or panacea. I don't know. <laughs> but it's the cure-all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I obviously agree, and and it's it's the culture of the left since the '60s, which we know is a left that was that was uh, heavily funded by by the State Department to focus on non-class issues. Why? Because those non-class issues divide. Those are not unifying. Um, those are not unifying focuses. Um, and and the thing is that I, I experienced it when I was organizing with Bernie, and I know you did as well. We knocked shit hundreds maybe thousands of doors in working class um, neighborhoods we saw black folks uh hispanic folks white folks uh gay lesbian transfer we saw all types of people anyway. and when we sat down with <laughs> any them class any race any creed any whatever yeah. we, we we saw different species we saw <laughs> aliens <laughs> we saw we saw it all when we were organizing no seriously um <laughs> uh the one thing that they all shared was that their main concerns were economic concerns. Their main concerns were spread out and it was where 
if I lose my next paycheck, I, I, I can't pay for rent. I can't do this. I can't do that. If I get sick, I don't have health care. These concerns are the same. So what are we doing? Focusing about things that divide us. Focus on the stuff that brings us together. Um, and Land and bread. Land and bread. I mean, simple as it is. Or simple as it gets. No more ABC theorist. <laughs> Parenti calls them ABC. Anything but class. No more anything but class theorists. We can obviously have analysis of, 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 of race and, and sex and, and everything, right? But it's we have to keep class there at the center because if not, we're doing a petty bourgeois activity. And that's the thing, that identity, um, identity discourse that removes class is class identity discourse. But it's just class identity discourse of a specific class, a specific, usually petty bourgeois academic class or even upper upper class who who's talking about how to diversify the one percent and dumb. I shit was like just that. gonna say, you think <laughs> the article "Diversify the One Percent" has class character? You think that's a bourgeois <laughs> article? You're racist. I knew yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks. I think we should probably wrap up our podcast here. I think it was a very fruitful discussion. Um, I have to work at six a.m. Sadly, because uh, I'm a member of the the proletariat still. Uh, but thank you, Carl. Essential worker too. Right? Yeah, nursing home. They need me. Otherwise, everyone would be dead from COVID already. He's one of the, right, thank the main you for ones. Watching and, last words, Carlos. I was just gonna say that you're one of the main ones and and all the fake positives. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's all. You. Yeah, that's all you. Positive, positive, positive. It's It's part of the liberal agenda. (laughs) All right. It was great talking to you. Um, It was a good talk. I lost sense of time. I can't say when I stopped the recording thing, whether it's going to say we're talking for 20 minutes or or three hours. So I think that's a good sign. Yes, for sure. All right. See ya.